Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technologies with me, Tiasha Zaitz. This is the last discussion in the series of interviews for the movie Overdose, How Can We Prevent Medication Errors, which aired in June this year. You will hear from Dr. Marinka Zitnik, a computer scientist from Harvard, studying applied machine learning with a focus on challenges brought forward by data in science, medicine and health. A large aspect of her work concerns the use of AI for better use of medications, either by analyzing and predicting side effects in polypharmacy or by potentially discovering new indications of combinations of drugs that are already on the market. Dr. Zitnik joined Harvard as an assistant professor in December 2019. Before that, she was a postdoctoral scholar in computer science at Stanford University. She was also a member of the Chen Zuckerberg Biohub at Stanford. Some of her methods are used by major biomedical institutions, including Baylor College of Medicine, Karolinska Institute, Stanford Medical School, and Massachusetts General Hospital. In this discussion, we talked about the role of AI in the development of COVID vaccines, the role of AI in drug development, realistic expectations of AI tools we can expect in next 5 to 10 years, and more. If you haven't seen the movie Overdose yet, find the link in the show notes. By now, the full interviews with all the speakers, 10 experts from 6 countries across the world, are published. Also, if you're a clinician working in the US, you can actually earn CME credits by listening to this show. Find the link to more details in the show notes. The CME5 process is powered by Adaptrack, a simple platform to unlock precious time and money while avoiding malpractice, burnout and administrative risk. So do check the link in the show notes. Now let's go to the discussion with Dr. Marinka Zitnik. Marinka, thank you for joining me on this discussion about the use of AI in medicine and especially more targeted on medication management and better use of medications. But perhaps uh, just for starters, for many, it's very difficult to understand how is it possible that we got so many COVID-19 vaccines in such a short time on the market. So if we leave the political and financial reasons aside, did AI play any role in this? So what was the role of technology? Thank you, Tiasha, so much for inviting me. It's a great pleasure to be here with you today. So to to, to highlight or discuss some of the roles that AI has played in the development of vaccines, I think certainly it has played a substantial role throughout the development, delivery and manufacturing of vaccines. And that is still um, taking place today. 
So what is first, what is really important to say is that vaccines that were developed so quickly for COVID-19 are primarily due to multiple decades of basic science research that has really developed some of the technological processes and platforms that allow vaccine developers to essentially use a plug-and-play approach for the development of new vaccines. And that has really enabled companies such as Moderna to design candidate vaccines in a matter of weeks. And then the rest of the time was spend on really making sure that these vaccines are, are really safe and efficacious in conducting clinical trials. So what was the role of AI here? The role of AI here was not so much in the development of this basic science understanding, which really spanned several decades before, before 2020, but it was primarily in um, the, the context of uh, clinical trial design, recruiting, for example, of patients to clinical trials that there were several different clinical trials that took place around the world with different populations. So the role that technology and AI has played in that side, in that, in that sense, was in providing decision support systems that help patients or candidate potential individuals who might be a good match for a certain trial to quickly identify them and then flag them in order for healthcare professionals then to reach out to them, invite them to certain to clinical trials. So that was an important role that AI has played. Most several large countries have also developed AI systems for tracking and monitoring and early detection of possible unwanted adverse events related to COVID-19 vaccines. So that's also where actually AI systems were used to go through large amounts of data, typically nationally based cohorts and, and databases of adverse event reports submitted by individual patients as well as healthcare professionals. And these algorithms have identified and flagged what if there are any surprising unwanted events that were then investigated further by professionals. And of course, algorithms in AI in particular had a major role so in terms of manufacturing, delivery and logistics. So these here are questions related to resource allocation and really optimizing the delivery and manufacturing of vaccines so that the maximal amount of them can be produced in as little time as possible, especially in these constrained, under constrained resources. So you mentioned predictions about the potential unwanted effects of the vaccines. You actually yourself were involved in a lot of research about predicting interactions between drugs, when, especially when it comes to polypharmacy, that's a huge issue in patients. So can you maybe talk a little bit about the research you did so far and what kind of data was used there? Was it the information about pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics? patient data and also databases about adverse drug events that uh, you mentioned were also used in the COVID-19 vaccine case. What kind of data points were the basics for predictions? So in several of the projects that we have in the group where we are studying drug combinations and higher order interactions between drugs and then potential effects that they might cause, we are looking at all these different data types that you have been mentioning. So I can highlight a few projects in that regard. We are particularly interested in actually two questions that are centered around polypharmacy and drug combinations more broadly. One is certainly of investigating combinations, um, investigating drugs that are already on the market 
and investigated combinations of those drugs that might be prescribed to real-world patients. That's incredibly important because the number of combinations of drugs grows incredibly quickly with the number of drugs that are in a combination. So it's, it, it is really not uncommon to encounter patients that can take 10, 20 drugs, prescription drugs at the same time to counter these very uh, hard and multifactorial diseases. And the problem with that is that it's impossible to test all these possible combinations that patients might be taking on through clinical trials and in labs. So that essentially means that we are seeing these effects for the first time now in real-world patient populations. And so what uh, the algorithms that we've been developing can help us do here is they, they can help us identify and flag potentially unwanted side effects of these combinations of drugs and unsafe events that they might lead to before these combinations are even prescribed to real patients. And so for that, we have been primarily working with data from FDA, our partners, FDA, so this, which is the U.S. regulatory agency for drugs, have shared with us over 10 million reports of adverse events for the entire U.S. population for over the last 10 years. And we use that information to actually identify what, what is the risk of an individual patient uh, developing a particular side effect. Taking into account their um, personalized information in the form of personal profile, their age and gender, demographic data, as well as other diseases and that the patient might have and drugs that the patient might be taking on. I think particularly interesting opportunity for research here is to move away from this one-size-fits-all notion of what kind of adverse events a particular drug might um, lead to. And in that regard, we are really looking at this large post-marketing surveillance data set to identify what, if any, differences do we see in adverse events uh, reported with individual drugs as well as combination of drugs when we look at different patient groups, where those patient groups are defined by demographics, geographic regions, or other probabilities, or sort of other properties of patients that allow us to identify what are gender effects or what are age-related effects in adverse events, so that we can uh, make more personalized identification and assessment of risks for individual patients. More recently, we are also, we are also looking at polypharmacy and adverse events associated with them in a slightly different way. So we actually put everything on, 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 a, on head and, and think of adverse events that are associated with polypharmacy as not necessarily being, or side effects associated with polypharmacy, not necessarily always being as unwanted adverse events. Sometimes that combinations of drugs might lead to certain properties that cannot be um, and might have certain effects that cannot be attributed to any individual drug in, the com in combination. And those effects might be unwanted in one patient, but actually might be desired effects in some other patients. So if we think of combinations in that way, in the way that sometimes the effects that combinations lead to might actually be positive or wanted effects in certain contexts or for certain patient populations, 
then all of a sudden, combinations of drugs offer exciting therapeutic opportunities. So in that regard, we work with several several groups and research projects here in, in the U.S. where we are looking at few diseases, including ALS, where we investigate combinations of up to 10 drugs in order to identify if there are any emerging properties that those combinations would have that are not in, we do not see when we look just one drug at, at a time, but we see them where we look at this cocktail of drugs and if those properties can actually be, have certain effects that are desired in patients. And we are doing that for ALS as well as for prostate cancer, where we are thinking of personalized drug cocktails that need to minimize incontinence as a side effect, for example, in the context of prostate cancer. So I think that combinations of drugs and studying this notion of unexpected events or side effects that we see when a patient takes a combination of drug and that cannot be clearly attributed to either drug alone in the combination are particularly interesting from both standpoint, both from the safe standpoint, as well as possible novel therapeutic opportunities, especially now where the development of a new drug from scratch is so expensive. It sounds like a, a great opportunity for the pharmaceutical industry and for healthcare for repurposing of medications and basically bringing better health outcomes faster for basically new discovered purposes. Exactly, exactly. You mentioned before that with this research, you are trying to figure out how different patients respond to specific drugs based on the gender and um, in general. January this year, I read a research that you published that actually revealed the gender differences uh, between reports about the differences uh, between men and women. Finding was that during the pandemic, women reported significantly more distinct adverse events related to medications compared to uh, men. And I wanted to dive into this uh, topic a little bit further because there's uh, various factors that can be attributed to this. So maybe do women uh, get concerned about a specific problem that they encounter faster than men? So is it really that women react differently to medications or is it just that the reporting between the, the two genders is different? Yeah, so that's a wonderful question. And that's a, these are exactly the questions that make this recent study that you are referring to particularly challenging. So to give a bit of context, our aim was to understand how has how a public health emergency at the global level, in particular COVID-19, has changed the landscape of adverse events and whether we see some whether we see certain qualities in experience of adverse events across patient populations, for example, when looking at women versus men or old versus young people. So one of the main challenges here is that adverse events are reported or reports of adverse events actually constitute and encompass a variety of different factors. And so one important consideration that you mentioned here is that we have indeed found in our study that during the COVID-19 pandemic, then women were have experienced adverse events at a higher rate, especially those associated with certain type of issues. And then a natural question to ask arises, which is that does that happen solely because perhaps women 
visited the doctors more often and therefore reported events more often because it was simply they interacted with healthcare system more often. And, and so that would then give them a chance to talk to, to report adverse events, which would in turn be seen as an increased number of reports in the national databases. Or we all also know that certain kinds of medications are primarily prescribed to certain populations. So perhaps in particular, medications developed for diseases that primarily affect women are then, of course, prescribed to women. So then if we simply look at the end effect, which are adverse event reports for those associated with those medications, we will see a surprisingly high proportion of women patients. But that is not because of any kind of unwanted bias on inequality that would happen, that would be going on, it is simply due to biology of, of, different, of, of different patients. It's, it is the same kind of problem as with age-related effects, where we also see that certain types of diseases primarily affect older populations. So therefore, we see that the kind of adverse events reported with associated with taking drugs developed for those diseases that affect elderly are primarily also adverse events that we can only see in older population and older patients. And so the main challenge of the study that we did was to disentangle those effects. So we can think of all these additional alternative explanation as confounding factors that we need to account for. And so the way we did that is through causal analysis to that allowed us to subtract away some of the unwanted confounder factors that might be ongoing in, in it and they might, that might interact with, uh, with the reporting of adverse events. And even when we did that, the results have not changed and our findings were still particularly very strong, where we found that those pre-pandemic gender differences were further exaggerated during the pandemic, that women suffer from more adverse events than men relative to pre-pandemic level. And that turns, that was the case across all age cohorts. For example, comparing women to male patients, they, women report 47% more adverse events whose occurrence has significantly increased during the pandemic. And we have seen that this gender gap between experiencing certain adverse events has further increased during the pandemic than before, which was already very surprising. Why? Because the, as the expectation of research community was that we will see that the number of reported adverse events decreased during the pandemic. Why? Because Patients were discouraged to actually visit hospitals and healthcare systems because of the risks uh, of getting infected with, 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 with coronavirus. And so there were actually less opportunity overall to interact with the, your physician and uh, then report them side effects that, 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 uh, that your patient might be experiencing. And so what we found instead is that despite the overall body or number of adverse events ha reports has decreased during the pandemic relative to pre-pandemic reports, there are uh, a number of adverse events whose, whose reporting has unexpectedly increased for women during the pandemic, and that gender gap has increased in the relative between 
has increased between women and men relative to the gender gap that existed in pre-pandemic levels. And so these kind of studies are important because they can inform, um, first, they can potentially identify these preventable social inequities that might be mitigated by healthcare uh, community and public health experts in order of designing appropriate interventions that can then alleviate reporting of adverse events and that uh, then can uh, develop a kind of or, or deploy systems for early detection of those adverse events in the context of public health emergencies, such as COVID-19, where access to healthcare system is, uh, is limited. The design of clinical trials and drug discovery is getting a little bit more complicated because now we are discovering all the factors that impact how a specific patient is going to react to the drug. So if we want to incorporate all those findings in the clinical trials already. Do you think that further complicates the drug discovery process? Yes, absolutely. I think it further complicates it. On the one hand, on the other hand, it also creates a vehicle towards uh, precision medicine or personalized medicine as as our northern star or northern star in design of drug development and design of discovery of new drugs and clinical trials. Why? Because now all of a sudden it is possible to uh, actually look at the patient data across different modalities, going from genomic sequences and information on patients, as well as their health record information, to A, identify what patient might benefit most from a given clinical trial, what patient might benefit most from a given treatment, and then essentially stratify patient population by their genomic profiles or by their profiles, healthcare profiles, in order to identify that while a drug might not be very efficacious across the entire patient human population, it might be particularly uh, well suited for certain strata, for certain patient groups, or particularly unsafe for certain patient groups. And that's all important to know. It, it then allows us to realize the concept of precision medicine more concretely, where we would move away from this notion of one size fits all. At the same time, it can be quite challenging from the standpoint of how now can we ensure that our, that, that participants in design of clinic, in clinical trials and design of clinical trials is such that it's inclusive and it covers a diverse population of of people, which has been a major problem that, that is now recognized as an issue in the design of clinical trials over the last few decades, where the primary notion was that participants of clinical trial were, were middle-aged white men of European descent, at least if I think of clinical trials designed and performed in the US. But the problem is that that population of patients is then when characterized and we understand what kind of adverse events they might experience, whether drugs will work for them. But when the drugs are approved and get on the market, it's not just that population of middle-aged white men take drugs, but then everyone, every patient, including many many other patients with completely different characteristics and possible morbidities take those drugs and now all of a sudden then, then becomes very 
challenging and potentially lead to failure of drugs or uh, withdrawal from, from the market because those uh, pitch groups are not well characterized. So there's been a strong push towards ensuring that the drugs that are being developed and a variety of models that support development, including AI models that can identify therapeutic opportunities or predict safety events or, or other important uh, questions related to drug development, making sure that these models work equally well across patient groups and so that we can ensure fair and equitable access to treatments as well as uh, fair and equitable decision support for um, down-the-line biologists, virologists developing drugs as well as healthcare professionals who are down-the-line prescribing those drugs. It would definitely imagine just having, for example, a decision system that would yeah, I guess we're thinking about as a concrete example. I can, I, I guess we're thinking about the same thing. It would be a dream come true for a, for a, a prescriber to have a system that would predict in advance how a specific patient will react to the cocktail of drugs. But as you mentioned, on the one hand, a lot of research at the moment is done on retrospective data. You mentioned a few factors that can also challenge the data that is already available. There's also the bias about who reports the adverse drug events and about which patients and not. So there's a lot of improvement to be done there as well. The question everybody would probably uh, ask you or you get probably asked a lot is when do you think that the re research about the use of AI in polypharmacy, that's very exciting. When could that research actually be translated into a decision support system for Healthcare. Yeah, so I think it's important here to distinguish between clinical implementation and deployment of prototypes that are done in research settings versus really routine use of these systems and tools in clinical practice. So what we have already seen and our group has been fortunate to be able to do is to work hands-in-hands hands with a, both bi biologists on the drug development side, as well as then clinical research on the actual clinical practice side of things to test these algorithms in the real world. And so that is still very controlled environment because it, it is a pro it's a project with where there is close collaboration between computer scientists, us who develop the algorithms, and then endpoint users, biologists or clinical researchers who are using these systems. And we work hands-in-hands -hands together to try to validate them in a selected, well-controlled environments and in, 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 in clinics where we then make it as simple as uh, have monitors that side-by-side -side so show predictions made by are models about about drugs that are meant to be prescribed versus some standard alternative drug interaction checkers, for example, or lists of adverse events. And then so clinicians can look and compare those lists directly. And essentially that helps us carry out various user studies where we test what extent really then 
endpoint users of our models can build trust into machine learning model predictions and really find them useful in their real settings. And similarly, on the side of biologists, where we are more focused in that part on basic science understanding of drug mechanisms, it's a it's a the similar question arises how to make sure that predictions made by these models can be interpreted meaningfully and are accurate. And so we are working in closely with biologists to to make sure that we close this gap between kind of mathematics and model development and algorithmic development and really their use in practice. But so that's one part of the story. The other part of the story is really thinking about either getting these algorithms approved through some new regulatory pathways that are now offered in the U.S., and then routinely using those uh, algorithms across a large number of healthcare systems in a country or globally, but probably first in a given country or state, without us as inventors or developers of those algorithms essentially shepherding endpoint users through, through their use. And so that's really where the frontier of research is today. It, it's, it's, it is still very challenging to, to actually use these models routinely in practice. And I hope that over the next decade or so, that will be changed and these models will be more routinely used to help healthcare professionals prescribe drugs to, to act as a recommendation system to help them diagnose patients faster, especially in certain settings such as patients that are very hard to diagnose, that have rare diseases for which or that have diseases with no good treatments or very complicated treatments where, where these models can potentially these some of the confounding factors apart to help to help healthcare system. You already answered my next question, which was on the one hand, with the rising amount of data next to the awareness that we need a lot more data about a lot more diverse populations. But leaving the challenges aside, there are already new models of digital twins that could enable basically uh, computerized models to predict uh, specific effects and some of the medications or potential new uh, targets, uh, new molecules, are already discovered in silico. So I'm wondering, with development and rise of quantum computing and accurate data to analyze with that power and AI, how far do you think we still are from having a very rapid development that wouldn't demand patient harm? which is inevitable, basically, in also in drug development. Yeah, so that's a w wonderful, great question. And so far in our conversation today, we, we talked quite a bit about later stages of drug development, clinical trials, and then what happens when drugs are approved and are on the market. But there is an entire multi-year and multi-billion process happening before then related to early stages of drug development, targeted identification, toxicity screens, experiments that are designing, that are done in model organisms. And so in, in that regard, our primary work is on using molecular biology data sets, information about how a certain drug binds to targets for and, and what kind of targets proteins you might bind to and how those effects then propagate to underlying biological networks that take place in a human cell and, and then in that other context of human body. 
And for that, it's really important to have good models of an individual cell or tissue or that is affected by the disease for which the treatment's being developed or the entire human body. So this notion of digital twins then is incredibly, and think of it as almost like having a simulation system or in silico setting that one could probe and ask all these difficult questions regarding toxicity and safety of a drug before any um, clinical trials are done or even experiments in animals. And, and so that's, that is very exciting. And digital twins are being developed primarily for certain focused disease areas for which more data are being available. So there exist digital twins for aspects of oncology, for Parkinson's, Alzheimer's disease in some limited capacity based on limited understanding of biology, because it's really incredibly challenging to tease apart and identify really what happens when a drug is administered to a human body. And so these experiments first take place in a very crude way where drug is being added to some number of human cells in a petri dish. It's cells in a petri dish are very different from a human being. And so the question then becomes what kind of basic mechanisms of drugs action can be revealed to those experiments that now this can be done in high throughput manner through screening processes, for example, or experiments in cell lines. And then how to put all these experiments together to essentially integrate data from the level of individual genes and mutations and variants in a, in, a, in a genome to then proteins that are encoded by those genes, how those proteins interact with each other, what kind of molecular function they give rise to, and how then alterations of those functions lead to the onset of disease. So ideally, and what I hope will happen in the next in few, in the near future, is that we will have these differentiable counterparts of these large complex biological systems that in many ways will be uh, optimized for knowledge discovery, designed and, and interpreted by AI algorithms in order to allow drug developers and drug designers ask questions and pose queries and, and get, get predictions and insights that can inform all aspects of drug development. And, and the digital twins are particularly exciting from this standpoint. I hope that we'll have many more of them for a variety of disease areas and that get better over time when more biological knowledge is being integrated from the uh, gene level to healthcare and lifestyle level of, of, an, of a human body in order to really understand the complexity of the drug in the context of specific disease. And definitely with more data, AI is going to be increasingly important and the basic component of any research and a, an al analysis of all these compounding effects of these factors. And here, one kind of the discussion that's happening in the digital health space around AI is how can we make AI ethical, who, acts, who has access to AI models and data so it doesn't happen that these would be only corporations with large sums of money which could potentially also lead to additional inequities and 
the question I have here is that you are actually among the members of the Therapeutics Data Commons, which is an open science platform for AI-led drug development. Can you tell me a little bit more about the project and what stage it is at and how does it address the, the challenge that I mentioned? Yeah, so Therapeutics Data Commerce is an initiative I'm very proud of and excited about. I founded the initiative together with several collaborators later last year in, in 2020. It is a, a platform of AI-ready data sets that are designed to identify opportunities for AI across the entire stage of drug development from early phases and preclinical testing to later stages of drug design, and it spans also a, a variety of different therapeutic products, not only small molecules, but also bio and, and vaccines and gene editing as new, uh, on a new technological platforms. And so with Therapeutics Data Commons, our primary goal was to provide a meeting point between domain scientists, clinical researchers, biologists, who are enthusiastic as well as worried about, worry about AI and would like to use it but do not have rigorous machine learning and AI training. And on the other hand, machine learning scientists who are experts in development, new mod, developing new models, but really don't have the appropriate knowledge that would help them identify what are really important problems to work on versus just working on some problems that might seem appealing from the standpoint of algorithmic development, but would not really be useful for drug development and treatment. And so Therapeutics Data Commons is this meeting point that between domain scientists and machine learning scientists that can, we envision, accelerate and expedite drug development across all stages of, of development and discovery. Why did we founded that initiative? My primary motivation for founding the Therapeutics Data Commons was this notion of, of or experience that I've noticed that there is a tremendous gap between, on one hand, machine learning and AI community developing algorithms and then healthcare and biomedical research communities using those algorithms routinely in practice. And so I think that in many ways that gap can be explained by the lack of trustworthiness in current algorithms. So in machine learning and AI community, we're primarily focusing on accuracy. So we want our models to provide predictions that are as accurate as possible. And, and so in many contexts and many application areas, that might work very well. For example, for many social recommendation online world settings, in, that's really great. But for areas that are high stakes decision making areas like healthcare, it's incredibly important to not only consider accuracy, but also other aspects of modeling, which means that Predictions need to be interpretable. They need to, in the in, uh, predictions returned by model, should essentially be understandable in some way or the other to human endpoint users. And those endpoint users, really in order to use these AI models in practice, they need to trust them. And so then this set of auxiliary criteria where predictions of AI models should not only be accurate, but also robust, precise, 
and be, should be interpreted meaningfully, this broad area of research is now known as trustworthy machine learning. And it's concerned with this notion of how to close this gap between, uh, between in the context, if you are talking about the context of drug development, between algorithmic research community developing algorithms and making sure that they can really generate actionable hypotheses that are and predictions that are trustworthy that endpoint users will trust and then use in them and then use in their work in clinics as well as in research labs. And so what we hope with therapeutics data commons is to actually bring these different worlds together to close the gap between between a variety of different disciplines that should come together in order if we really want to expedite and transform drug development process. It's really important that we acknowledge the, the, the important contributions of a variety of different scientific disciplines and fields. And so that means that we need to work together, educate each other, and, and, and identify what are key open challenges where there are the great current opportunities for AI and how to address them appropriately. TDC strives to do that through construction of large AI-ready data sets, identification of these open tasks in machine learning and AI that are represent uh, today's oppor opportunities today for drug discovery and development, and then provide all programmatic um, support and ecosystem of tools, libraries, community resources for it. And we have seen tremendously positive response from research community so I've been just looking at some of the statistics last night and over the last three months, we have over um, 13,000 active users of, of therapeutics data commons, 2,000 active users, researchers from around the globe are actively using therapeutics data commons in their research, which is quite uh, a large number of researchers given that uh, this initiative is so new and actually old, less than six months old. So I, I think it's an important problem and we look forward to continue working on it. You alluded to the two worlds that currently exist. So on the one hand, there's a lot of excitement about the results that we see in research papers and a lot of excitement fueled by the imagination about what AI could bring. And on the other hand, all the kind of skeptical sides and things that we need to be mindful of, such as we mentioned the lack of data, the research being done on retrospective data, the fact that you might not be able to translate one model from one hospital to another. And when you have a model in one hospital, there's the challenge of concept drift over time when the model stops being accurate. So there's a bunch of things that are still very making people very uh, cautious and also maybe a little bit scared about using these things in practice, especially since probably there will be a point where we won't be able to understand everything that AI tells us. Taking kind of everything into account, the awareness between the two worlds, what are you realistically optimistic about that we could see or expect uh, in the next five to 10 years in terms of improvement in medication safety, let's say, if we try to limit ourselves in the whole exciting field of this? So that's an, uh, an important, great question. And I, I think that all of the challenges that uh, you have uh, mentioned and the perils of today's algorithms are really an, an important issues that need to be solved uh, 
because the decisions that are being made based on predictions and outputs of these algorithms can really impact human lives. And, and so that is what I had in mind before when I said that these are areas of high stakes decision making. And so because of that, we also have need to have and have these high standards on how AI algorithms and models should perform. And, and so in the context of medication safety, what I would hope will happen or what I realistically expect will happen on in the last in the next 10 years or so is is the following. So I would expect that a there will be sufficiently more tools available. To, to patients actually that could improve their self-care. And so whether that would mean things going that would go from apps or portals that patients can access in order to uh, or take a photo or a scan of parts of their body and then automatically only identify uh, this, whether there is a high risk and whether it warrants a visit at the doctor's office. So I still think this in many ways, these tools will be of assistive nature. So they would, they are primarily uh, will be designed to help patients decide or in, encourage them whether they need to go to the doctor or solicit experts advice from healthcare professionals based on a certain probability or risk of an unwanted adverse event on issue with regards to medication. So I, I hope that many things will happen on that front that we already see exciting opportunities going on that go beyond just AI and that incorporate other aspects of computer science, for example, robotics or digital patches. So, for example, there has been a drug approved in the U.S. that is actually hybrid. It consists of a pill and a patch, patch that patient uses and put on their body that can then send alerts to their doctors whether a patient has taken the drug or not which is important, for example, for mental health disorders, where we know that there is an issue with patients not taking drugs regularly. And so then that might lead to safety issues down the line. And, and so these kind of technologies that are not only rely on AI, but also on other parts of technological revolution, I think they will be more readily accessible to patients themselves in order to identify early potential adverse events, make sure patients can adhere to their medication and treatment regimes, and potentially identify what kind of activities they should take or do not take to while they are on certain treatments in terms of probability of adverse events and so on. And of course, I hope that much of that will also be deployed in some of the low-income countries because now these online digital tools make them possible for these early detection tools being actually deployed on a mobile app and, and can help address these safety issues early on, even without the presence of doctors. Um, on the research side of medication safety or in the side of healthcare systems and biomedical research community, I would primarily hope that we'll have more decision support systems and recommender systems that I don't think will be auto, auto, autonomous agents, but will provide feedback and recommendations to patients, to doctors when prescribing patients, when prescribing drugs. And on biomedical research side, I, I, I hope that we'll see many more models with feedback loops that would integrate patient data 
back to health, back to drug development stage. And so that the, we, we see this entire ecosystem reinforcing each other in different aspects. And I, I hope that benefited these tools will be more routinely used in practice and that some of the front over the next 10 years and then some of the frontiers will be ex, will be identified, for example, and leveraged more often, for example, the digital deal that I mentioned is certainly one of them. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. If you enjoyed the show, do leave a rating or a review by going to www.lovethepodcast.com slash faces of digital health and you will be redirected to the platform appropriate for your device. The link is in the show notes. And if you haven't yet, do subscribe to the show to be notified about new episodes automatically. Coming up in autumn are many episodes about digitalization of healthcare in Europe and more. Faces of Digital Health is a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. So if you're interested in exploring healthcare from various aspects and various viewpoints of different stakeholders, do visit the healthpodcastnetwork.com to find other shows as well. Stay tuned.